The Fanboy, episode 124. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 124 of the Shazadam podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, yeah, I gotta, I gotta just start with that because it's hilarious. Yesterday, a completely absurd rumor made its way onto the interwebs. I will not cite who shared it, so to, so as to share them the embarrassment, but a geek site. Uh, published yesterday that DC was planning on renaming Black Adam Shazadam, and uh, the internet rightfully laughed their asses off at that, and then it got promptly debunked. So no, folks, Black Adam is not becoming Shazadam. Uh, we can we don't have to look forward to Dwayne Johnson's upcoming movie being renamed Shazadam. Uh, Black Adam will continue to be Black Adam, and Shazam shall continue to be Shazam. All right. So, <laughs> by the way, while we're on the subject of Shazam, I guess you know may as well just dive right into some of the stuff that's floating around and and my reactions to it because I woke up this morning to a flood of rumors about. Henry Cavill's Superman is going to show up in Shazam. Now, hmm, I'm like, where have I heard this before? Oh, that's right. <laughs> Three years ago, I had the same scoop, but it was about the first Shazam. And it's funny because that scoop eventually got confirmed by the, by the Hollywood Reporter and others, which was that Henry Cavill was indeed planned to appear in the first Shazam movie, but then complications arose, be they contractual, be they the studio not being certain they wanted to continue to use Henry as Superman. You know, a, a number of things sort of uh, got in the way of him getting to film the cameo, which is how we all ended up with the now infamous headless Superman cameo at the end of Shazam. But originally there actually was a scene of sorts that was planned for Henry Cavill's Superman to sort of mentor a young Billy Batson in the ways of being a hero. And ultimately, like I said, that didn't pan out. THR later confirmed it, but it didn't happen. So when I hear these rumors again, this time coming from that hashtag show, which is a blog site I'm really not that familiar with. I know that there was a time when they had a pretty good track record, but I know that there's been a lot of turnover there, so I don't know what the quality of their sourcing is these days. But... Either way, I mean, it's not a hard rumor to believe. In fact, I've even said on this here show that the place where we are most likely to see Superman again is not in, unfortunately, is not in a standalone Superman film, but rather as part of these upcoming Shazam Black Adam movies over in that corner of DC on film. The corner of DC on film being produced by Three Bucks Productions, which is, you know, that's Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, you know, in that corner of DC on film is where we are likely to see Henry Cavill's Superman fly again, since he's part of that whole three buck family. And we know Dwayne Johnson's had an absolute, I don't want to say it. It sounds very vulgar, but he's had an absolute, um, um, excited emotion about 
facing Superman at some point or having Superman be in one of his movies. So listen, it's an interesting rumor. I hope it's true. What sounds different this time is that according to that hashtag, and this is their wording, not mine, I don't, you know, they're the ones with the story. So all we can go by is what they are claiming. But in their story, they're claiming that he's actually part of the cast, which sounds a little bit different than he's a, a cameo appearance. You know, so if they've gotten a look at a casting grid or if they've gotten a look at some sort of professional piece of of, of paperwork from Warner Brothers that lists Superman as a character in the movie, that's a whole other kettle of fish. By the way, yesterday my wife made fun of me for using a whole other kettle of fish because she's like, it's not 1940 anymore, but listen, I like old-timey phrases, so just hang with me here. Um, so yeah, listen, if he's an actual cast, if he's an actual character in the movie, that's a whole other deal. And that would mean that they would have contracted him by now and set that. And maybe that is what the rumors were about a few months back. Remember a few months ago, there were rumors that Cavill was on the verge of signing a new deal to continue to play Superman in other DC extended films. And you know, again, not to do a solo, but to make appearances in them. So if he is going to be in Shazam and it actually ha you know, it's a decent sized appearance, it could very well be that this is what that deal was about, which is what I thought would be the case. But either way, now there's officially a rumor, you know, uh, published by someone who put their name on it, that Henry Cavill will be popping up in Shazam 2. So listen, if that happens, I'm extremely excited. I'd be much more excited if they were saying that Cavill is returning in his own solo movie. But again, who knows? If the appearances in Shazam 2 and possibly a Black Adam or a Black Adam 2 uh, ultimately garner enough buzz, that could potentially make Warner Brothers want to make another Henry Cavill Superman movie, assuming, of course... That between now and then, they haven't gotten an amazing pitch from a filmmaker that wants to reboot him. You know, because I've always said that's a possibility. You know, someone like a Matt Reeves could come in, not exactly Matt Reeves, because he's going to be tied up with Batman for a while. But someone like a Matt Reeves, a filmmaker with a distinct vision, who has a very clear pitch for the, super, the Superman story they want to tell... You know, if someone comes in and they blow Warner Brothers away with their pitch for a Superman reboot, that's going to get off the ground pretty quickly, I'd have to think. And so even if Henry does show up in those other movies, if the reboot's already in the mix, then he really is just going to be a, you know, a, a small appearance Superman from here on and unlikely to get that solo film. So listen, that's the spot we're in. I'd love it if it's true. Let's see what happens. In a way, hearing that Henry Cavill's Superman will appear in Shazam is a big old bit of deja vu for me. But listen, let's hope, fingers crossed, it actually works out and that the plan is actually able to be completed. Because listen, sometimes there are plans made in pre-production that people love to you know, make scoops about. And then listen, not all plans come to fruition. And, you know, let's see if this plan comes to fruition. That'd be awesome. Um, but, okay, I actually wasn't even intending on starting on that. So before I tread into other things within that realm of DC on film, because, listen, what would an episode of the Fanboy Podcast be without me uh, delving into some DC on film? Actually, quick 
side tangent because this just popped into my head. Yesterday, <clears throat> I'm at a bridal showcase for DJ work because our governor here in New York recently announced that as of March 15th, we will be able to have wedding receptions again. And you could have a, a, a party of up to 150 people, assuming that it's a big enough hall and so on and so forth. So the New York inter entertainment industry is starting to kind of ramp up. And yesterday I was at a bridal showcase trying to... Um, I sell myself to prospective clients. You know, there were several couples there trying to pick the vendors who were going to be their DJ, photographer, florist, all that kind of stuff. And a couple who I've never actually met, but found me online through the stuff I was doing last year where I got to interview with live with Kelly and Ryan for my porch parties. And I also got interviewed by uh, NBC and uh, a couple, it was kind of a wild ride. If those of you who don't know about that, I had an interesting situation arise last spring when I did something to help my community through the pandemic and to try to lift the spirits. But this isn't a show about that. But the point is, the, the couple who knew me through that and booked me without ever speaking to me just knew that, like, they liked what I was doing. They saw me on Kelly and Ryan and they, you know, they, they booked me basically sight unseen. Uh, they were there yesterday and they were really happy to finally meet me in person. But here's the funny thing that I, I had to share with you because I got such a kick out of this. She's like, yeah, and I recently found you on Twitter. And you, yeah, I followed you and you followed me back. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess you've noticed that I, I tweet a lot about movie stuff, right? And she was like, oh, yeah. I, I, I turned to my fiance and I'm like, he talks about Justice League a lot. <laughs> and I just thought that's hilarious. He talks about Justice League a lot. Like that is what my Twitter feed conveys to the world. And I guess I have to remember that sometimes, right? Because there are people who find me who aren't just looking for my hot takes on DC on film. There are people who are looking to hire a DJ and they go to the IDJ Weddings Twitter and like, here's the latest rant about Zack Snyder and the Snyder Cut and all this stuff. It just kind of brought me back to reality of like... Yeah, to the outside world, some of this geeky stuff that we obsess about is like a whole other language to them, you know. But uh, either way, I just thought I would share that where she's just like, yeah, you talk about Justice League a lot. <laughs> anyway. All right. Before I get to Justice League, because let's face it, I'm going to end up there at some point. I always do. Uh, before we get there, I wanted to share a quote with you from Steven Spielberg. Because, uh, you know, one of the major topics we were discussing here on the show when I kind of first brought it back at, towards the end of last year was this idea of will movie theaters survive this pandemic? And will the movie going public, you know, will that whole culture of going out to see movies together, will that ever fully recuperate from 2020? And the fact is, it, it, we're still not out of it in 2021. And Steven Spielberg just, uh, you know, wrote an impassioned letter on this topic. And honestly, he puts into words all of my feelings about this. So I feel like let's hear from the legendary Steven Spielberg. So here I'm going to read what he said in this letter. Mr. Spielberg said, in the current health crisis where movie theaters are shuttered or attendance is drastically limited because of the global pandemic, I still have hope bordering on certainty that when it's safe, audiences will go back to the movies. I've always devoted myself to our movie-going community. 
movie going, as in leaving our homes to go to a theater and community, meaning a feeling of fellowship with others who have left their homes and are seated with us. In a movie theater, you watch movies with the significant others in your life, but also in the company of strangers. That's the magic we experience when we go out to see a movie or a play or a concert or a comedy act. We don't know who all these people are sitting around us, but when the experience makes us laugh or cry or cheer or contemplate, and then when the lights come up and we leave our seats, the people with whom we head out into the real world don't feel like complete strangers anymore. We've become a community, alike, alike in heart and spirit, or at any rate, alike in having shared for a couple of hours a powerful experience. That brief interval in a theater doesn't erase the many things that divide us, race or class or belief or gender or politics. But our country and our world feel less divided, less fractured, after a congregation of strangers have laughed, cried, jumped out their seats together, all at the same time. Art asks us to be aware of the particular and the universal, both at once. And that's why, of all the things that have the potential to unite us, none is more powerful than the communal experience of the arts. Listen. Spielberg just, he said everything there that I've been trying to say. He said it in a much more succinct and articulate way. For those of us who feel that way, the way he described, for those of us who feel that way about the movie going experience, uh, we're all going to show up in droves and we're going to love this and take it seriously. And anyone who read those comments or heard those comments and rolled their eyes at it, anyone who thought that, oh, geez, what a big sap. No, it's not that deep, Stephen. Those people are the ones likely to stay at home and not bother the rest of us at the theater by being noisy and being on their phones and not properly appreciating being at a movie theater with a bunch of strangers trying to go on a ride together. So, you know, that's the only thing I will add to, to Spielberg's comments here which is I expect all the people who share that that viewpoint on movies to be the ones who flood the theaters the second life gets back to normal. And the people who don't have that soft spot in their hearts for that experience, they don't have to come. I don't want them to come, and it's fine if they don't. Um, but okay, so now... Let's kind of now let's, let's somehow head back into DC territory. Uh, I don't know how this happened. How do I always end up talking about DC? But you know what? Yesterday, I was over on the Twitter, and you know, as part of some conversations I was a part of, you know, it really started to become crystal clear to me that there is a great way to divide up the DC multiverse depending on the medium. And depending on the network that it's on, which is if, if everything pans out and Zack Snyder's Justice League is a huge success in March. Let's say that happened. You know, we're just going by hypotheticals here, right? Let's say March 18th comes. They get a flood of new subscriptions. 
there's you know and 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 HBO is counting money hand over fist and they feel like wow this investment in Zack Snyder's Justice League was totally worth it and there's such a palpable passionate audience let's continue to do this let's release the air cut let's you know let, let's see what we can do to continue to sort of expand either the Snyderverse or at the very least you know, an Elseworld, Black Label sort of DC feel. Let's continue to lean into that on HBO Max. To me, that makes perfect sense. Because HBO as a brand has always been sort of more grown up. If you look at the level of their exclusives over these last 30 years, the types of subject matter that their exclusives cover are always stuff that are geared towards adults. They always skew older. HBO has always tried to come off as like a premium brand meant for grown-ups who enjoy the finer things. That's always kind of been HBO's brand. That's why everything they do feels like Hollywood quality. That's why people were so blown away by The Sopranos, where it's like, okay, we love The Godfather, which was just a couple hours of movie. You've somehow made a six-season thing that feels like it could be The Godfather, but even bigger. You know, HBO's always just been that thing where it's 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 a high-quality mini movie studio. So let them continue to have that reputation when it comes to DC. Let them have, you know, if the, if it's a success, let them continue to expand the Snyderverse. Even the stuff that's already there, like Titans and Doom Patrol, they skew older as well. They're, they're not trying to get 12-year-old kids to watch those shows. Those shows are more for grown-ups. You know, you could tell from the violence, from the foul language, from the general tone of Titans especially, this is not meant for kids. So... And that's what's on HBO Max, right? Titans, Doom Patrol. So if you have that sort of content that skews older on HBO Max, but then over on CW, you have the stuff that skews younger, I think that's an interesting way to go. And then in the movies, it's really kind of whatever the filmmakers want to do. If they get a pitch for something that's gritty and dark and intense and they like it, that can be the movie. Or if they get a pitch for a booster gold, lightweight, or a static shock type of thing that, that's not necessarily going to be, um, you know, like Snyderverse levels of intense, they could greenlight that too. You know, the movies will be very much more of a mixed bag where you get a Shazam type of film, but you can also get like that James Wan uh, Aquaman spinoff about uh, what what do they call that one again? The deep, whatever the he wants to do that scary thing about the uh, the those uh, that scary part of the ocean. Why am I blanking out like that? I'm not going to pause and look for it. I'm sure you guys know what it is. I know I got in trouble last year because I kept adding an S at the end of the title. I don't remember what it is anymore. But you know what I mean. James Wan wants to make like a horror spinoff of Aquaman. And the point is, on the big screen, he'll have the freedom to do that. Because the 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 current people calling the shots at Warner Brothers are really, they seem to be hell-bent on giving filmmakers their freedom again and allowing the movies to be whatever the directors want them to be, rather than trying to get the filmmakers to fit into their specific vision. They're going back to the way Warner Brothers used to be pre-Snyder, where they let filmmakers just run wild with their imaginations and create, you know, and I say that because James Gunn this week, he, while, uh, while over on Twitter discussing the Suicide Squad, he tweeted out the following to a user. He said, the Suicide Squad is fully finished 
and cut, and I made every single choice, and they never once even slightly interfered. They gave very few notes. They were usually good and minor, and I took them if I wanted to, and didn't if I didn't want to. Warner's was creatively amazing. Which also works hand-in-hand with what Patty Jenkins has said about Wonder Woman 84. She got to make her movie. And yes, there were notes. Yes, there were apparently scenes that the studio would have liked cut. But they're back to being a hands-off studio. Right? And that's what fans have been asking for, clamoring for, for years. At least certain fans have been clamoring to just let the filmmakers filmmake. And leave them alone once you've approved of the script and you've given them their budget and you've given them all of the particulars of of what they're allowed to do. Now just go let them make the thing and leave them alone. That's what fans have been asking for. And according to James Gunn and according to Patty Jenkins, that's exactly the type of world that DC directors get to create in now. So if you have the more grown-up mature, R-rated, let's say, DC black label content on HBO Max. You have the stuff that's a little lighter, that skews a little younger, where the, the, the depictions of these characters are a little more traditional. You've got the Arrowverse for that. And then the movies, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's completely open to what the filmmakers want to do. You know, if Ava DuVernay wants to make some sort of space odyssey out of the new gods, then she can do that without worrying what everyone else is doing. You know, so the movies will be more of a free-for-all, whereas the networks could provide more steady homes for the different types of content they want to present. So I just think that's an interesting way to go. And in general, talking about James Gunn, is kind of cool this week because a, I'm very excited for Suicide Squad. You know the little glimpses we've seen. I'm dying for a trailer, but I feel like Gunn, with his sort of dark brand of humor, uh, with this sort of premise. You know we got an official synopsis for Suicide Squad also. So you know what? Let me share that, and then I'll talk to you a little bit more about why I'm so excited. All right. So the official synopsis reads: Welcome to hell a.k.a. Belle Reve, the prison with the highest mortality rate in the U.S. of A., where the worst supervillains are kept, and where they will do anything to get out, even join the super-secret, super-shady Task Force X. Today's do-or-die assignment? Assemble a collection of cons, including Bloodsport, Peacemaker, Captain Boomerang, Ratcatcher 2, Savant, King Shark, Blackguard, Javelin, and everyone's favorite psycho, Harley Quinn. Then, arm them heavily and drop them literally on the remote, enemy-infused island of Corto Maltese. Trekking through a jungle teeming with militant adversaries and guerrilla forces at every turn, the squad is on a search-and-destroy mission with only Colonel Rick Flagg on the ground to make them behave, and Amanda Waller's government techies in their ears, tracking their every movement. And as always, one wrong move and they're dead, whether at the hands of their opponents a teammate, or Waller herself. If anyone's laying down bets, the smart money is against them. All of them. Um, That sounds to me like an awesome Suicide Squad movie. That to me sounds like what the concept for the Suicide Squad itself demanded. 
You know, that sort of tone, that sort of breakdown of like who these people are, why they're working together and the cutthroat nature of what this team is going to be like. And the fact that, listen, it's a suicide squad because you're going on a suicide mission. So watching characters get killed off and dropped off in in creative ways, uh, that sounds to me like a hell of a time. So listen, the suicide squad sounds great, but Gunn has also got a foot over in the other universe, right? Because he's also part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And there's some interesting synergy here, too, because Gunn, now that he's finished up on Suicide Squad, he's got Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 on the mind. And right now, a film has just finally begun filming that actually has some connection to Guardians of the Galaxy 3, and that's Thor, Love and Thunder. Thor Love and Thunder has officially begun filming. There have been set pictures that have already made their way onto the web. And rest assured, Thor is back to being in chiseled god Greek god-like shape. And he's got the long rock star hair again. So it's going to look like a more classic uh, visual version of Thor. And what I'm finding interesting about that, aside from the fact that James Gunn and director Taika Waititi have read each other's scripts and offered up notes to make sure that there's a little bit of synergy there. Because remember, Thor 4 is going to connect in certain ways to Guardians 3. Because when we meet Thor in Thor 4, he's still with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Remember, that's how we ended Endgame. That the two of them were, you know, the, those two entities, Thor and the Guardians, were heading off on an adventure together. So it looks like that's going to continue because, spoiler alert, Chris Pratt's Star-Lord is in the set picks from Thor Love and Thunder. But beyond the synergy between Gunn and Waititi, beyond the synergy between the Guardians and this Thor movie, something else that has me really intrigued that I just learned about is that for Thor Love and Thunder and even Guardians of the Galaxy 3... They're going to be using some of the technology that John Favreau pioneered for The Mandalorian. And for those of you who have not yet seen the Disney Gallery making of The Mandalorian Season 1 series on Disney's Plus, on Disney Plus uh, A, you absolutely should. I'm intending to check out Season 2 now. But on Season 1, they talk about the breakthrough technology that was created for this film, which is essentially a soundstage that can mimic almost any single outdoor or any kind of set whatsoever, where the entire set is wrapped in like HD projections of whatever's supposed to be going on. Rather than green screen or blue screen, the actual visuals that are supposed to be around the actors are being projected onto the screens at all times. And you could transform the room. You could be like, all right, let's make the room look like outer space. Bam. And all the walls and the ceiling and everything suddenly looks like the infinite reaches of space. When I first saw this, I mean, listen, I can't even do it justice just describing it the way I am. So please check out the Disney Gallery Mandalorian season one thing. But as soon as I saw that, I thought this is going to change how movies are made. Because honestly, and this is just the beginning, but if, if you're able to recreate virtually any environment and make it photorealistic and make it really seem like they're there, and you can also give the actors 
more of an actual sensory experience so that they're not acting staring at a floating tennis ball and being told, oh, that tennis ball is a big, scary alien. Like now the actress can actually see and react to stuff in real time. It's not just their imagination. They could look out on the horizon and see something coming at them. You know, it's something that Carl Weathers spoke about a lot and other people where it's like, it was amazing working on The Mandalorian because of how immersive it is. You barely have to use your imagination. You walk onto the set and you are there. Meanwhile, the cast and crew hasn't flown anywhere. You guys are on a soundstage in California, but it's a soundstage that's able to replicate any place ever in the most photorealistic way possible, including like the shadows and the lighting and stuff that's usually an issue when you're doing a lot of CG, a lot of special effect shots. That's all completely mitigated here because the shadows that are, that, that are falling on the actors' faces are the actual shadows being created by the images on the screen. So it, it's an amazing leap forward in technology. And as soon as I saw that, I'm like... This is going to be how they make Star Wars movies forever from now on, to recreate all those different planets and to do all that stuff just right from right from their set in in California. I mean, why would they ever leave? Just like how um, John Favreau did The Lion King without ever actually filming anything in Africa. That entire movie was made in a warehouse like The Mandalorian is as he was working on the eventual technological breakthrough that he used for the Mandalorian. You know, he kind of like started using it on the Jungle Book. Then he damn near perfected it on the Lion King. And then he brought in some very new and exciting elements for the Mandalorian. And now it looks like that's going to get used for Thor 4. That's going to get used for Guardians 3. And folks, I think this is just the tip of the iceberg here. I think this is the future of Hollywood filmmaking. I think we're going to, they're going to have to do very little on location shooting, which is going to bring costs down. And listen, who cares about that, right? Mandalorian looks unbelievable. Mandalorian looks as good, if not better, than any Star Wars thing ever. And it was shot on this type of soundstage without ever actually going to any of the desert remote locations that we see on the show. So. That, to me, as a film nerd and, and, and understanding how the, how the industry is growing and evolving and changing its business models. I mean, listen, if, think about how much that saves. That saves so much time and effort and energy. Rather than having to send your entire cast and crew and actors out to the middle of a desert somewhere to make believe they're in Tatooine and all the costs and what if there's a sandstorm? What are the other things that have happened on previous Star Wars things? Now it's just, all right, let's all pack it in. in let's go into the warehouse. We've laid the sand on the ground and the rocks that make it look like the sand. We're going to make the walls in the sky look like a desert wall and sky. A desert sky and, 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 and atmosphere. And bam, now it's just there. It's just done already. This is going to bring costs down. This is going to make it easier for studios to make that shift to streaming. Because if they're not spending as much money on, on making these movies, then it's just it's much easier to stream them. You know, you, you don't need to make back as much when you're not spending as much. So it's just, if this is going to have a sizable impact on the business and we're already seeing it. So I'm just curious now to see how soon till non-Disney projects start using this. Because, you know, I, I think they're, I, they're either able to license or rent 
this technology, or they can just do it themselves. I don't know that any of this stuff is like copywritten. It's really just like a methodology for how to shoot this stuff and how to lay out the warehouse so that the entire warehouse can just transform into whatever you need it to be. Um, we have, I'm, so I guess that's kind of my next big thing. I'm curious to see when non-Disney <clears throat> projects start using it. Like, I'm sure had it been invented sooner, maybe Denis Villeneuve might have shot Dune in a situation like that. You know what I mean? I feel like all big space epics from now on are going to want to use this technology. But we'll see if I'm right. You know, I, I, I see this as nothing but a victory. Because we can still create the illusion of where these stories are taking place, but we don't have to actually go out and 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 risk destroying a beautiful piece of nature because we want to film there. No, we can just create that jungle that we want to film in. We can just invent this water planet without having to, you know what I mean? So it, it's, it seems like a green way to go also, which I kind of appreciate. Um... And while we're on the subject of things that Marvel is cooking up, and I wouldn't be surprised if this next project also takes advantage of this new technology, it was announced this week that Ryan Coogler has signed an exclusive TV development deal with Disney, and already there is a major project that's come from that partnership. He is going to be producing a series set in Wakanda. And what's cool about that is, aside from him being involved, you know, a lot of the cast members like Letitia Wright and Winston Duke and Angela Bassett and others will be a part of this series. And a lot of people are already starting to feel like, oh, this you know, this could potentially be like a like a Wakandan Game of Thrones type deal. You know, since so much there is about like the royalty and who gets to be the king and who's the rightful, you know, what it just it seems like it could be a rather epic sort of experience. And I don't disagree with that, but I feel like sooner or later, whether in this Wakanda series or in the upcoming Black Panther 2, they're going to have to address the elephant in the room, aren't they? They're going to have to address T'Challa. And I know that the plan for now is not to recast T'Challa, that now that we tragically lost Chadwick Boseman, that we're just going to somehow work around that. And I don't know, I, I used to say I have mixed feelings on that, but the more I think on it, I just think that that's the wrong way to go. And it's no disrespect to Chadwick Boseman or the legacy of his incredible performance as T'Challa. But I feel like T'Challa is a bigger character than any one actor. And that might sound insensitive at this point because we just lost him. And please know that I don't mean that as an affront to Mr. Boseman. You know, I loved what I was, I pretty much cried the night that he died. I was really shaken by that. And, you know, it's, it's a tragic loss, of course, but this idea now that we're just going to proceed without having an actual T'Challa or an actual Black Panther, like, how are they going to do that too? I guess that's part of my thing. If, if, if they had said, okay, we're not going to recast T'Challa. But we're going to find a great way to introduce a new Black Panther. I would have been like, OK, so then, you know, I guess they're going to have to go to the comics and and look at the lore and figure out how they could transfer the Black Panther situation to another character. There, there already is sort of a precedent there in the first movie. But how are you going to do that, though? without making a CG Chadwick Boseman who's going to hand over the Black Panther to the new person? You know, so it just seems like 
they're going to have to figure something out. And I'm really excited about the Wakanda series. And I'm optimistic about Black Panther 2. But at some point, they're going to have to address the fact that T'Challa is either no longer with us or uh, they have to get another actor to play him as part of a transfer so that we can create a new Black Panther. You know, so I I want to see how this plays out. I'm excited for what's to come. But the elephant in the room is just going to loom larger and larger as you make all these stories about the Black Panther that seemingly don't include the actual Black Panther, you know? Um, but okay, so now switching up gears just a tad. Let's talk about the Snyder Cut. No, this is really just a quick thing, I swear. I probably should have mentioned this sooner, but it's in my notes now. So, so be it. Uh, it was also finally confirmed this week that the Snyder Cut, the four-hour Snyder Cut, is going to be rated R. And there was, of course, a big brouhaha on Twitter about that as you had some people talking about what a terrible idea that is. And then you had people defending it tooth and nail. For me, the way I look at it is quite simple. Had this been four years ago and the understanding was that this was going to be our Justice League for the foreseeable future and that this is the Justice League that we're going to see a Justice League 2 and 3 about and that basically this is the mainline most well-known because let's face it what happens in the movies really sets the tone for everything else so the movies are really where pop culture takes its cues from so had they said that Justice League in 2017 was going to be rated R I would have been pretty furious you know I would have been pretty upset thinking, how could they do this? How do you make the first ever movie that has Superman, Batman, Flash, all these people working together to like, this is the first Justice League movie and you're going to make it so kids can't go? Or you're going to make it? It's just like, why would you do that? You know, like That would have been my reaction. But now we know that that's not the case. We know that for better or worse, this Justice League that we're getting on March 18th is more than anything like an Elseworld tale. Here's just an alternate version of the Justice League story. And this kind of exists there on HBO Max. And, you know, it's also unlikely to get sequels. So when you factor all that in, it's like, listen, it's an Elseworld tale. So the rated R thing doesn't really phase me one bit. You know, if this was supposed to be the Justice League that I had to follow for the next five or ten years and I had no other version of Justice League coming to the movies, uh, I would have been real uptight. But finding out that the Zack Snyder's Justice League is rated R is like, well, yeah, of course it is. Did you see the Ultimate Edition? Have you heard his comments on the type of film he wants to make? Of course it's rated R. So what are you freaking out about? And again, this is not going to be the Justice League that all of pop culture has to, has to live with with the next few years. This is the Justice League that the folks on HBO Max are going to watch and potentially see more of if they deem it a large enough success over there, which in and of itself is kind of an interesting story because Robert Meyer Burnett recently came out with some interesting comments where while he was speaking with studio sources, the general impression he got is that Toby Emmerich and Warner Brothers are the reason that it's going to be a four-hour movie, and that's because they think that it'll hurt its chances. 
You know, they, they want this to be a cul-de-sac. They want this to be one and done. And they know that making it a four-hour movie is going to really help that to be true. Because, let's face it, I've said it many times, just a quick recap. If this were some, you know, prestigious, special, once-in-a-lifetime miniseries event with four to six episodes where people can discuss after each episode anxiously awaiting what happens on the next one and it would slowly, gradually build buzz and you would have people who wouldn't normally sample this go, all right, I'll, I'll watch the first episode and then determine if I want to do it. You know, it, it's it's pretty much undeniable that the miniseries approach would absolutely help this thing to grow in size, to grow in scale, and to grow in impact. Making it one four-hour one-and-done that's rated R makes it really just a love letter to Snyder's fans specifically as we attempt to move on. So that's just an interesting thing because I'm not really a conspiracy theorist. I didn't want to get into that last week. I tried to kind of like move around that subject a little bit, but I guess, you know, the, the moral of the story is it, it does appear that Warner Brothers and Toby Emmerich in particular are doing what they can to make sure that ZSJL doesn't continue onward and that the Warner Max people or whatever you call the folks in charge of HBO Max, they're really going to be the ones who determine what happens next. You know, if HBO Max does find all that success that we discussed earlier, you know, they may decide to push forward. But this mandate by Emmerich or, or whatever pull he was able to have over the HBO Max aspect of things to get them to make it just one four hour movie really kind of makes clear what their intentions are for Zack Snyder's Justice League next month. And it's, it's funny, while, while on the subject of films that were reworked and reshot and changed and all that sort of stuff, which is you know, the big thing with ZSJL. Um, an interesting fact was just brought to my attention about the upcoming prequel series uh, for Cassian Andor, you know, Diego Luna's character from Rogue One. Something just blew me away. And this is just a quick little like bit of trivia, really. But I cannot imagine if this would have happened over on the DC side of things. So check this out. You know, for those of you who don't know, Rogue One was also massively overhauled after the fact. You know, Gareth Edwards, the director of the first Godzilla film, had shot Rogue One. And he put together, I think, like a rough cut of Rogue One or something along those lines. And Lucasfilm had a look at it, dug all the action bits, but really didn't like the connective tissue. Didn't like where the characters necessarily ended up or, or, or the tone of those or even the way he shot it. I heard that his aesthetic was much more like almost like a, like a fly on the wall, sort of like... Um, just kind of like more artistic cut of like you're you're watching almost like a more reality based thing as this team is coming together to try to steal the Death Star plans, and so they brought in a whole other writer and director, just like Warner Brothers did. Rather than Joss Whedon, they brought in filmmaker Tony Gilroy, and Tony Gilroy rewrote. A lot of the character development stuff, all the scenes in between the big action set pieces. And not only did he rewrite them, 
But he shot them too. He directed those reshoots. But the funny thing is, you never hear about that, right? Unlike with Zack Snyder's Justice League, you don't hear about what Lucasfilm did to Gareth Edwards on that movie. And what's interesting, and the connection here, is this Cassian Andor prequel series for Disney+, Plus. I just found out, was being written by Tony Gilroy, the new guy. So that got me thinking about Justice League. Can you imagine if Justice League had come out and then a few months later or a year later, they announced there's going to be a spinoff TV series from that Justice League and it was going to be written and produced by Joss Whedon instead of Zack Snyder. Like it would have been the, the uproar would have been one for the ages. And yet, Lucasfilm has gotten away with it. You know, they, they allowed the guy who hijacked Rogue One from Gareth Edwards to now also oversee the spinoff of Rogue One. I just, I don't know why that's so funny to me, but I guess, I, I, I guess just thinking about the way people would have responded to even the announcement. Now, like, Joss Whedon is making a spinoff about that Russian family. For HBO, the, the Russian family from, from Justice League is getting their own series. I mean, people would have lost their minds. Um, but anyway, just thought that was interesting. I didn't know that Tony Gilroy was the creative force behind this Cassian Andor series. And I guess it just goes to show you that, like, when they brought him in for Rogue One, they must have been super impressed with what he came up with. Because when it came time to expand on Rogue One, they didn't ask, they didn't ask Gareth Edwards. They asked Tony Gilroy. So, yikes. Um, but okay, so now we're going to change up gears. Uh, I want to just talk a little bit Spider-Man, a little bit of Spider-Man stuff. Because, you know, Spider-Man 3 is now back in production. You know, they, they filmed some stuff before. Whatever, we'll get to that. Um, but now it's kind of back in full swing. And Tom Holland is doing some interviews. And there's still lots of buzz around the fact that this next Spider-Man movie is going to have like some interesting Spider-Verse stuff where we're going to see villains from across Spider-Man's cinematic history, like um, Al Alfred Molina's Octopus, and Dr. Octopus, and Jamie Foxx's Electro. And, you know, there's also the rumors that Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire will be involved. We already know that Doctor Strange will be there as a setup for his Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness film that's coming out, directed by original Spider-Man director Sam Raimi, no less. So we know that there's a lot of very interesting threads in this. And finally, we've got comments from Tom Holland himself on uh, what's going on there. And I just kind of want to read that to you. So Tom Holland in a chat with Variety said, I can say that it's the most ambitious standalone superhero movie ever made. You sit down, read the script and see what they're trying to do. And they're succeeding. It's really impressive. I've never seen a standalone superhero movie quite like it. And I'm just, you know, again, that little lucky shit who happens to be Spider-Man in it. <laughs> we got a lot more shooting to do. We started before Christmas and shot for like seven weeks. We stopped for the Christmas break and then we're starting again. I'm just as excited as everyone else to see it, let alone be a part of it. So listen, it's pretty amazing to hear about, 
you know, the ambitions for this film based on everything that we've heard. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be extremely ambitious. And Tom Holland is is, is lending credence to that feeling, you know. And listen, it, I just com- I just concluded the Sam Raimi trilogy last Friday. And just a quick note on that, right? Because last week I, I let you know what I thought of my rewatch of Spider-Man 1 and 2. Spider-Man 3 remains a tough pill to swallow. I mean, listen, I didn't dislike it as much as I originally did. You know, when I originally saw it in theaters, the level of disappointment I felt was like palpable. I was just, you know, I, I was one of many who when the credits started to roll in the theater that day, I went, Ugh, you know, a lot of people did. It was like, really? So I didn't feel that level of animus towards Spider-Man 3 this time. I found that I enjoyed a lot more of it than I didn't. But man, that's just not a satisfying ending to that trilogy, especially when you watch them all right next to each other. You know, when I did three consecutive Fridays of Spider-Man 1, Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3, Spider-Man 3 really feels like a weird ending to that trilogy it feels like sam raimi clashed with the studio and this was the best compromise he can come up with i mean listen we there have been rumors in the past that that's what happened that like they forced him to put venom in there and that he practically forced venom in there cynically like oh you want him so badly well i'm gonna make him look like crap you know like listen i don't know if that's exactly what he did but things have been depicted that way before where sam raimi and avi arad we're at war with each other over what goes into Spider-Man 3. And ultimately, I think the movie greatly suffered from that. And I kind of really wish we would have gotten the Raimi cut of Spider-Man 3, but I don't even think he got to film that. So what you going to do? Um, but before I move on from Spider-Man, uh, I just wanted to mention too, this is more of just like a bit of trivia, but Tom Holland in that same interview said he loved Edward Norton's performance in Primal Fear. Like, it's one of his favorite performances of all time. He can't find a mistake in it. And hearing him say that was, like, amazing for me because I've often said that Edward Norton's performance in Primal Fear is amazing. It's perfection. It's, it's, it's the original special effect. The original special effect when it comes to movies is great acting. When an actor can make you believe, can pull you into this fictional world. Fictional? Fictitious or fictional? I just made up a new word. Can pull you into this fictional world and make you believe that this is happening or make you engaged in their emotional truth. And that got me thinking. You know, because yes, Edward Norton did that in Primal Fear with Richard Gere. And I walked away, even just being like 11 or 12 years old, I walked away going, I just watched like a seminal performance. I just watched A Star Be Born. This Edward Norton guy is going to be a big deal. And of course, he was a big deal after that. But it got me thinking about how much I miss when acting was given the credit that it's due in pop culture, you know, in, in, in mainstream movies. Because I remember a time growing up where, like, you know, movies would be sold almost entirely on the caliber of its actors and of their performances. And I feel like you never see that anymore. You know, now it's always about which comic book or video game is this based on, or here's all the spectacle and one-liners and yada, yada, yada. You know, like, one great example of that is, like, when Michael Mann 
released Heat in the mid-90s. The first teaser for it is kind of remarkable in that it doesn't focus on the plot. It doesn't focus on like trying to sell you on the fact that it's a, a heist movie. It's, it, it, it doesn't talk about any of that. It ta- you, you have like the, the movie theater trailer guy essentially just talking about Robert De Niro himself and Al Pacino himself. The movie was basically sold as their films have created a legacy of classics that will endure the test of time. And now, for the first time ever, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, together. You know, like, that was th- that made it feel so monumental. You know, and to me, it was like, the, yeah, like Hollywood used to care about that stuff. Hollywood used to sell you on the fact that look at these amazing actors turning in these top shelf performances. And I feel like that doesn't really happen anymore, right? You know, listen, if you're into like, the indies and you're into following, you know, the, the, the lower budget, more dramatic films. And yes, there is inherent buzz. If you were part of like the Sundance group of people who were watching the Sundance Film Festival, listen, within those circles, acting will get discussed and highlighted. But pop culture has seemingly moved on from this idea that great acting and great actors and, and spellbinding performances are something worth going to a movie to see. Now, the only way they convince you to go to the movies is by promising you all of this other type of experience you're going to have. There's going to be all this spectacle. There's, this is going to set up that movie or this is going to follow up that movie. And this is all, you know, the stuff they sell you is that. They don't sell you, hey, here's this amazing performer who's going to show you why it is that they're so amazing. And I miss those days. I really do. I miss, I miss when, when movies being art was celebrated, not just, you know, here's the latest installment of the latest franchise title. I sound like a crabby old man, but, you know, reading that quote about Tom Holland loving Edward Norton's performance and hearing this buzz for Tom Holland's performance just got me thinking again, like, it's a shame that like this in and of itself isn't enough to excite popular culture, you know? And something else I think about too, like, I think another facet of this is there used to be a time when a serious actor, a, 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 a beloved actor, would now go do a superhero movie or some sort of, you know, spectacle-driven type of film. And they would do that with the hopes that now the, the, the fans who got to know me as that superhero or as that villain or as that whatever, the people who saw me in that will now come see my smaller movie, my more artsy-fartsy movie, the, the story that means more to me. I'm going to go do Daredevil because it means they're going to see, so, you know, whatever, the story about the most inspirational janitor in Massachusetts. I don't know. You know, like, th- there used to be a time for that. And there used to be a time when that worked. But nowadays, I would say over the last 10 or 15 years, little by little, that carryover has disappeared. And you, you, you don't see that anywhere more clearly than with Robert Downey Jr. Because Robert Downey Jr. is arguably one of the most recognizable faces in the world. One of the last few, I, I shouldn't even say he's a movie star, because honestly, he can't open a movie that isn't an Avengers movie. 
And that's the point I'm getting at. If you look at almost anything he's done since, since being Iron Man, none of it has done that well. And, and, and I, I don't count Sherlock Holmes because that's another blockbuster thing based on a longstanding character. And it kind of fits the Marvel mold to me to an extent. But when he did, um, what was that one with Robert Duvall, the preacher, I think it was called. Um, and he also did even that freaking Doolittle last year. Doolittle with that budget and that cast, it bombed. It's like people don't follow an actor anymore because they love that actor and they want to see him in more stuff. They only want to see that actor in that specific role they know him for. You know, that is a way in which pop culture has shifted over these last 20 years that I've really noticed. I don't know if anyone else has really noticed it. But, you know, and another example of that is Ben Affleck himself. You know, Ben Affleck was Batman, and you'd think that would have raised his his profile in the eyes of a lot of fans around the world who perhaps did not know him. And now they're like, oh, I like this Ben Affleck guy. He was a great Batman. I should see Live by Night. And Live by Night bombed hard. It bombed. And that's his passion project. And it got completely just avalanched by Batman. Eclipse. Nobody really cared. It made no money. The reviews weren't kind. And to me, like, it's just another example of like, here's a guy who was just Batman and he cannot get people to go see his passion project. You know, it didn't used to be that way. And it's just, it, it's an intriguing way that pop culture has evolved in these last couple decades. And I just kind of wanted to point that out because I, for one, really miss when acting was a special effect and when people respected actors so much that they felt almost like a responsibility, like an obligation. Like I got to see everything this guy does because of the amazing work they did in this film. You know, so anyway, I'll get off my soapbox now. I miss real actors and I miss acting being a big deal. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm going to wrap up on just two final quick notes. Um, Resident Evil, the new Resident Evil film has a um, release date now. It's coming out in, I believe, September 4th of 2021. And I'm actually very excited about that. Because it's supposedly going to be more horror-based than action-based. And it's much more in line with the first few games in the series. And it's interesting to me because the, the, the games had an identity crisis. And the movies did too. And they kind of work off each other, but the movies are now going in reverse. So to explain what I mean by that is, the first few Resident Evil games were in the genre known as survival horror, where it was more about the fear and the dread and the atmosphere of, okay, we're putting you into a terrible situation. We're going to give you very little health, very few bullets, and you have to figure out how to survive in this insane situation. You have to determine, okay, I have three bullets left and there's two zombies in this room that I have to get through. How do I get past these two with using minimal amounts of my ammo or none of it possibly? Or what if I have to and now I go to the next room and I have no bullets and there's five zombies waiting for me there? You know, the, the original Resident Evil really ramped up the dread in that regard. It was more so about 
How am I going to make it through this? And then somewhere, I shouldn't say somewhere, from Resident Evil 5 onward, it became much more of just an action series where you could almost not tell the difference between Resident Evil games and um, Gears of War, where it's just co-op, shoot-em-up action games. And I'm happy to hear, and I haven't played it yet, I'm happy to hear that the Resident Evil games have returned to survival horror. Brett Miro, my buddy, who was here for a very fanboy Christmas and who used to have the gaming podcast The Play It Loudcast, and he was also my former uh, cohort on the Revengers podcast, uh, he has told me that Resident Evil 7 was a return to form even though it was a first-person shooter and that Resident Evil 8 is looking like it's going to be absolutely amazing. So I'm looking forward to that. But, you know, it, it, it to me, it's refreshing to know that Resident Evil eventually has come back to its original identity. For the movies, though, they never embraced the survival horror. Those Paul W.S. Anderson, Mila Jovovic starring Resident Evil games were all much more action-based than horror-based. They were more shoot-em-up, they're, you know, here's the badass girl killing all the monsters type of movie. And that's why I never got into them. You know, I didn't mind so much that they didn't use enough video game characters. I didn't mind so much that they took the story in a new direction and, and kind of, you know, revamped the overall setting for Resident Evil. I didn't mind any of that. But what I minded was that it wasn't scary. What I mind that it was just, oh, this is, these are just action movies. Okay. So they're more like Resident Evil 5 and 6. And those are the ones that I'm not interested in. Whereas survival horror, I'm all about. So now that's happening, though, in the movies. They started action-based, and now the reboot is going to be horror-based. So listen, I'm very excited for that. It's got a release date. And I really hope it lives up. I like that it's a period piece set in 1998 in Raccoon City and that it seems like it's really going to try to adapt the story of the games rather than just take some loose threads from the game and weave a whole new story. So that's right up my alley. And, you know, and, and in learning of that is when I found out that Paramount is still planning on releasing Jackass 4 around that same time in September. Uh, listen, I don't know if that's still the case. I know they filmed some stuff pre-COVID. I don't know if they got to finish it. But I don't know if I've, ever, if I've ever shared that on this show. But Jackass is one of my all-time favorite time killers. You know, or, or even just at the end of like a long, stressful week when my wife and I just want to like get on the couch and just unwind. We don't want to watch anything that's going to make us cry. We don't watch anything that's going to have to make us use our brains because it's just been a trying week. Our favorite thing to do after putting the kids to bed is throwing... We I have the entire Jackass box set. <laughs> that's how much I love the Jackass movies. I have all three of the original ones as well as Bad Grandpa and alternate cuts for all of them. So there's, we basically have eight jackass movies and every few months we just kind of cycle through them when we just need a reason to giggle and just have some mindless entertainment. Jackass, you know, I, th that series, I think people sleep on it because it just looks like a bunch of idiots harming themselves. And I get it, but I don't know. I, I get such a kick out of watching these lunatics do the things that they do. But for, more so than anything, what I'm drawn to is the camaraderie between the cast. 
seeing these friends haze each other and put each other through hell and then laugh about it. And they still, you know, love each other and care for one another beneath it all. And, and you see the great time they're having is kind of permeating off the screen. I find it very contagious, the good time that they're having. So, you know, it's going to be weird not having Kevin Dunn back. You know, Kevin Dunn uh, died in a car accident several years ago. Um, you know, so it's going to be weird. I'm sure they're going to probably dedicate the film to him and it's not going to be the same without him. But, you know, I, I, I have high hopes for Jackass 4. I hope, I hope it's great and I'm really looking forward to it. But now I'm going to wrap things up with my film recommendation of the week. And before I do, I just want to throw a quick note that podcasts are always greatly helped by your reviews and your shares. So if you can please find the time between now and next week to get on Apple, Apple, Apple podcasts and leave me a review, I would greatly appreciate it. And I will read it here and I will, I will name you and thank you directly on the show, just like I used to do. You know, that's one little thing that's been missing since the show relaunched. I have a ton of amazing reviews, which have made the Fanboy Podcast the top fanboy show on all of Apple Podcasts. If you just type the word fanboy into Apple Podcasts, my show is the first one that comes up, despite how many shows have this name in the title or who tackle fanboy topics this is the one that comes in number one because of you guys and the great buzz you helped me to generate during the first year and a half or two of this show. But since coming back, I haven't added any new reviews to the mix. Uh, so please, if you're happy the show's back, if you're a new viewer or a new listener, an old listener, you know, no matter what, if you have not yet gone and left me a review, Please uh, just take a couple minutes and do that because it really helps. It really, really helps. But okay, so this week's film recommendation. And remember, this is a film like all the other ones that I'm going to recommend that has always been an all-time favorite of mine that I'm now in the process of re-watching one by one. I'm going through all my old favorites to determine whether or not I still love them or if perhaps I just liked them a lot as a kid or if it's nostalgia or if I was just in a really good mood that day. And uh, this week's is a classic from the 80s. I introduced my kids this week to The Goonies. And I'm so relieved because I've seen a lot of movies from the 80s, from my childhood years that I go back to now and I'm like, oh, what? I liked this. My, how my tastes have changed. But The Goonies held up. The Goonies is still a great time. And... If you have not seen it in several years or if it's been a while or if somehow if you've never seen it, if you've managed to go your whole life without seeing The Goonies, please take some time to check it out. It's worth all the raves. And uh, quick spoiler alert. I mean, the movie came out, I don't know, 26 years ago or 36 years ago. I am so old. 36 years ago. Um, towards the end of the movie, when Sloth rips the shirt open, reveals the Superman S, and the music does a da-da-da-da-da, which is amazing because Richard Donner directed that movie too. Um, I've known for months. I've known for months. I'm like, my kids are going to freak out about that. You know, now that I've introduced them to 
Superman the movie and Christopher Reeve and John Williams and they're so attached to all that stuff. I I I, th- I even said it on this show like five episodes ago that I cannot wait to show them the Goonies. Well, it happened. It went exactly the way I thought it would, and it felt so good to be right. But like I so as, I knew. Okay, <laughs> slow down, Mario. As soon as I saw that it was about to happen, where Sloth and and Chunk arrived to to rescue them on the pirate ship, I kind of sat back in the couch a little bit because I wanted to get a good view of, of, of my kids for when that happened. And as soon as he grabs the shirt, I just stopped looking at the TV and I looked at them. And as soon as the shirt went open and the S and the flourish of Superman music came, both my kids leapt forward. And looked at me in complete, excited, stunned disbelief. And it was just a great feeling. It was like, I knew I had to do it this way. I knew I had to do it this way. Because my wife's been trying to get us to show The Goonies for a while. Because it's it's a movie we both grew up on. We've that whenever we've discussed classics from our childhood that we want the kids to be exposed to, Goonies is always in like the top three options that we bring up. But in the back of my head, there's always been this thing. I'm like, yes, I want them to see it, but it has to be after they've seen the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, just to make that Superman moment land extra. And, uh, oh, it happened and it was great and it was super rewarding. So, and overall the Goonies itself was super rewarding. And one thing that I took away from it that I really appreciated was, and this is going to sound real sappy, but Hey, it is what it is. I'm a sappy guy. Deal with it. In the Goonies, something that I really loved is just, again, the camaraderie and the, the caring between the characters, the love that the Goonies characters all feel for one another, the little moments like early on when when our, when Sean Astin's character is staring out at his town that he feels like he's going to lose forever. And, you know, this is going to be the last time we get to see the sunrise on our home. And he's out there staring out at the, at the horizon. And so far, him and his older brother have been nothing but, like, antagonizing. It's been more it's sort of like a typical brother relationship where they're, you know, they're kind of hazing each other and they're kind of mean, you know, all of a sudden in this moment, all the other Goonies have gone inside and Sean Astin's character is standing out there alone, just taking it all in, allowing the emotion of the moment to wash over him. And then Josh Brolin, his older brother, comes out and just without saying a word, just puts his arm around his brother and he drags him back to the house. You know, those little moments... That's the stuff that I, I love Richard Donner for. And that, that's the kind of stuff that he brought to Superman that I really appreciated. Like you know, these moments of just heart, these moments of characters who are there for each other, who are kind to one another, who love each other beneath it all. You know, throughout the Goonies, there's so much warmth between the characters that really that is to me the magic of the movie. Yes, there's a lot of awesome stuff that happens. But to me... Having this group of friends who care so deeply for one another, uh, you know, th- that holds the whole thing together. Otherwise, listen, it would still be a cute, fun little adventure movie. But the heart and emotion in that movie and the human element of that movie is really what makes it. Not all the pirate ships and booby traps and Fratelli Brothers madness. It's, it's, it's the togetherness and the friendship and the working together to try to make tomorrow a little better. And let's do it together type of thing you know so the goonies is awesome 
check it out. Hopefully you thought episode 124 of The Fanboy was awesome. And uh, hopefully you're inspired to leave me a review. Until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. Adios.